Well, good morning. Can we turn the lights on real quick? Ah, there we go. I can see you. What a joy. If you have your Bibles, would you open with Genesis? Open to Genesis chapter 15 for me. You were not here last week. We uh, entered into a new series. This series will carry us through um, through Easter. The small break in the middle in this series is called "Christ Meets Me Everywhere." And the key verse for this series is found in Luke chapter 24, verses 27, and then again in verse 32. And, and what's happening is Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. And as he is on the road with the disciples, they don't recognize him. And so he opens to them the scriptures. He unpacks the scriptures. He goes through the Old Testament prophesying about the coming Christ through the Old Testament scriptures. And the result of this happens in verse 32. The disciples, after having been revealed who God is to them, they respond by saying, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the, on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And then they take off running to go share this good news about Jesus with the other disciples. And so what we, we, the conclusion that we came to last week is that when you encounter Jesus, when you encounter Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures, when you encounter Jesus through the word of God, it leads to passionate joy and missional zeal. And so my prayer for our church is that as we encounter Jesus throughout the Old Testament, it would lead us to missional zeal to say, I've encountered Jesus, now I want my city to encounter Jesus. And so I'm praying that on Sunday mornings, we will have an encounter with the living God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Because our city needs Jesus. And the best way that we can make sure our city gets Jesus is to make sure that we see Him. To make sure that we behold Him. And to make sure that we continually look to Him. Before we get into our passage today, I think something that's important to recognize is that there are two different layers of context to our passage in Genesis 15 today. The first that I'll point out is that the first five books of the Old Testament were written to the Israelite people as they were coming out of Exodus in Egypt. They had been delivered from Egypt and now they are in the wilderness and while they're in the wilderness, God gives them the first five books of the Old Testament. So that's the first layer of context. This was written to the Israelites in the wilderness. The second layer of context for where we're at today is Abram's life. In Genesis chapter 12, God has called Abram. Calls Abram and he says, go to a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And, though, and through your offspring, the nations of the world will be blessed. And so Abram goes. Now at this point in time, Abram has no offspring. So he goes based off of the promise of God that there will be offspring one day. He obeys. And although his obedience is imperfect, he still goes. He still leaves. 
finally he, after a long trek, makes it to the land that the Lord had promised. And he builds an altar to the Lord. The Lord says, you've made it. And this is the end of chapter 13. And God tells him, this is the land that you're going to inhabit. And so Abraham sets up an altar to the Lord at this place. But immediately after that, what we soon find out is that he gets to the land and there's war happening in the land. It's not as if this land is just an open range. There's actually multiple kings fighting over the land at the time when he arrives. And a rebellious uprising has come to challenge the king of the land and the king wipes them out. He wipes out this rebellious uprising. So maybe Abraham's sitting there and he's watching this play out and he says, okay, maybe this, this is the way that this king gets thrown out. And it doesn't happen. The king's still in charge at that point in time. And then other kings in the land see that this king seems to be getting too powerful. And so they come up against this king to go to war with him, against him. And they come up to go to war against this king, but they also get defeated. And in this process, Abram's nephew Lot is captured and is taken away. So Abram takes his 318 men. He goes and he pursues this king who has captured Lot. And then he just, in one night, whoops him. Just takes care of him, takes him out. This army that couldn't be beaten by other nations, by an uprising and by other kings, is now beaten by 318 men. And so Abraham brings all of the possessions back to the king of Sodom who had lost Lot and lost all of his possessions. And instead of Abram taking this moment to stand and take the land, he gives it all back. He gives all that he had just gained back to the kings of the land. He turns it down because he has sworn to God that he won't take anything from the king of Sodom. And then we come to our text today, Genesis chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to lead to verse 21. We're going to read the whole chapter today. After these things, after Abram had gone and got Lot back and given the possessions back, after those things, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know? that I shall possess it. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. 
And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, of, uh, the, great river the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises and that we can trust you. We thank you that you are a God who is working in history. You are not inactive watching it play out, but you are providentially involved, sovereignly in control. We hold fast to you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This passage can be broken up into two promises. Verses 1 through 6 show us the first promise that the Lord makes, the promise of offspring. In the second passage, verses 7 through 21 can be broken up into the promise of land. God comes to Abram in the very beginning of this passage in a vision. And he says, Fear not, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now this would have been an awesome thing to hear after Abram just turned over all those riches back to the king of Sodom. Abram denied rewards that he rightfully earned in the spoil of war. And because of that, the Lord comes to him and says, Your reward will be great. I am your shield. But Abram doesn't respond with saying, Awesome, great Lord. He responds with a question. He needs reassurance. You see, Abram's life up to this point has been a life of unknown. He has been obeying and following the Lord without real guarantees of what the future holds for him. He's seen this idea of a promise that there will be an offspring, but he's never seen it realized. And so he's looking around his camp and he's seeing his servants and he's saying, are these to be the offspring that I will have? Is this who I will give all that I'm supposed to get to? Is this going to be... The nation that I'm built from people that aren't even part of my family? And so he asks, Lord, what will you give me? He comes to the Lord in, in reverence and asking, Oh, Lord, what will you give me? But he's not seeking wealth. He's seeking a son. He's seeking offspring. He's looking around and 
recognizing not only his old age, but also his wife's old age, and she has been barren since they were youths. So he turns to the only things he thinks could work in this time. It must be this servant. And this would have been devastating in the ancient world. If you didn't have a son to pass off your legacy to, it meant that you pretty much didn't have wealth. So it didn't matter how rich you were, it was going to go to somebody else's family. And so Abram's looking at the promise from God that he will be a great nation. He's saying, I don't see how that's possible. And God does not respond with a rebuke to Abram's questions. He responds with a promise. He takes Abram outside and he says, look up to the stars, and if you can number them, so shall your offspring be. It will not be this servant, Eliezer. It will be your very own son who will be your offspring. And the text tells us that Abram believes, and it is counted to him as righteousness. Because Abram trusted in God's word and the work that God would do to bring about an offspring. It leads to God crediting righteousness to Abram's account. All of this was God's work. All Abram had to do was sit back and believe. What we learn here is that God's favor is not earned by Abram's work, but it's earned by God's work. Believe that I will do what I say. Righteousness. And this is important when we look over the life of Abram. It's important because God continues to work it out in Abram's story. Not because of Abram's stellar track record. If we were actually to look over Abram's life, do a quick 30,000 foot survey, it's more often than not doing really silly things like selling his wife. Marrying his wife's servant. Neglecting his wife's servant. Neglecting his son. He's not necessarily a model of excellence, but yet he believes in the work of God. And so maybe right now you're, you're looking at your life and, and you're saying, my track record of obedience is spotty at best. In fact, I... I struggle to obey the Lord. And I'm just going to give you this, this is a little side note. If you are looking at your track record to see whether or not you're justified, you will always be found wanting. But if you're looking at Christ, if you're looking at God, if you're looking at the work that He does, you will always, always be counted as righteousness. Because we're looking not to self, but to Him. And the way that we combat sin in our lives is not to look at my sin and say, oh, I just got to try harder. There's merit to trying harder. I'm not saying that there's not. But the way that we defeat sin is not looking at self, it's looking at Christ. The way that we find righteousness in our lives is to look to Jesus and to reflect upon Him. We behold the glory and the beauty of the Lord until we see it. Abram is not a model of perfect obedience after this moment. It's not like the Lord credits righteousness to his account and then he obeys perfectly. In fact, he's going to go sell his wife again shortly after this. 
We'll see him be an apathetic leader of the home. He'll fail to protect the son that he conceived outside of trusting God's promise. And he will continually look to protect his own skin. Yet he's still counted as righteous. Not because of his obedience, but because of his belief in God to do what he says. This is forever and will always be the only way to experiencing righteousness, is to believe the work of God. Then we come to the second promise. The Lord begins this second promise in verse 7 by declaring himself, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur to give you this land to possess. You see, God doesn't start by saying, I am the Lord who you followed. It's saying, I am the Lord who brought you, who delivered you from the land you were in. It points to God's work in Abram's obedience. God points to his work in almost this entire passage. And so we have to take from that that this passage is not about what Abram does. This passage is about what God does. And Abram's questions now make a bit more sense when we recognize that God keeps pointing to himself, saying, I will do this. How? I don't, I don't understand. Lord, how will you do this? God keeps taking the role of active individual, and so Abram responds, Lord God, how will I know that this will happen? And I think... Something that's incredibly important for us to recognize is that God is not opposed to questions from a heart posture of, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. He is opposed to questions that are from a position of pride, but humility that invites God to help us believe him is a very different type of question. Right now, there's a movement in Christianity towards what's called deconstructing. It's a terrible movement. Its base is centered around doubt that desires to disbelieve. It's not doubt that wants to believe God. It's doubt that wants to disbelieve God. Faith, for instance, is subject to various doubts. I mean, we wouldn't even be able to call it faith if it was something that was so easy to believe. Faith is doubt that is brought to God. It's saying, I have these doubts, and I'm bringing them to you, trusting that you have the answer to them. Christianity is not a doubt remediation process, but a process that calls us to come to God with our doubts and to ask Him for help to believe. The doubter that wants to disbelieve is very dangerous. They will always find a reason not to believe. And in our culture, there's a current dis, a glorifying of doubt in this deconstruction process. Where Christians are coming to the Lord saying, prove it. And then what ends up happening is the only thing you can ever be certain of is your doubt. And here's what, what this text helps us to see is that we bring our doubts to the Lord. We don't glorify in doubt And people today have 
leveraged platforms for monetization and doubt has now become a commodity. You can make a living on social media by doubting everything. And many in a spirit of authenticity have shared doubts and also shared that it's better to never work through those doubts. Just live in that state. But to instead just live in this place of uncertainty, never really knowing, always living on sinking sand, question everything. Rene Descartes is a famous philosopher and he, he one night is sitting by his fireplace and he's petting his dog and he's sipping on a glass of tea and he, he wakes up. And because he saw everything seemed so real in this dream that he began to question every bit of existence. And this is the pervading philosophy that influences today's generation. Doubt everything. Don't believe anything. How do you know? And what this does is it makes truth relative, and your truth becomes your truth, and my truth becomes my truth, and none of us, neither one of us ever really knows whose truth is what. So now we can live however we want, because nobody has the market on truth. And this is dangerous, because we are called to have confidence in Christ, Amen. the solid rock that we stand on. So yes, we bring our doubts to God, not in a desire to disprove Him, but we bring them to Him asking, Lord, will you answer? Will you help me understand? Will you help me believe? God's not opposed to us asking questions. And God isn't rebuking Abram here for asking questions. Instead, He makes a covenant with him, and He provides him with assurance. Abram has doubts, and he brings them to God, and God brings a promise and a covenant to look towards in the moments where he has doubts again. And now we come to this incredibly obscure passage. Some of us will read this and we'll be like, all right, well, that was weird. Don't know what was going on there. That must not be for me. I think this is probably one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It's one of the most gospel-centered passages in the entire Bible. So God tells Abram, he says, Abram, go get some animals. Get a cow, a ram, a female goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. So Abram, he goes and he gathers these animals. And it doesn't say that God told him to do anything else. But yet, Abram somehow knows what to do with these things. You see, at that point in time, in that day and age, the way that covenants were made is you would take animals, you would cut them in half, you'd lay them in a line, half overlaid upon half, the center would fill with blood from the animals, you'd come to terms with the agreement of the covenant, and then both parties would walk through. And as you would walk through, it would symbolize saying that if I don't uphold the terms of this covenant, if I don't do this, I'll become like these animals. Destroyed. Bloodshed. Food for the birds. That's what I'll become. So Abram does this. He goes and he gets the animals and he brings them back and he lays them on their sides, cut in half, and he waits. He waits for God to come and to discuss the terms of the covenant which he's about to enter into. 
And he waits and he waits until eventually a deep sleep falls upon him. And with this deep sleep comes a great and terrible darkness. And it's in this place that the Lord speaks again. The Lord shows up and he unpacks the terms of the covenant. He prophesies that there's a future that will become a reality for Abraham's offspring or for Abram's offspring. They'll be, they'll be sojourners, servants, and slaves in a land where they are oppressed for 400 years. But God won't leave them to that fate. He will judge the nation that does this and he will deliver them. And Abram will die in peace, but what's fascinating is Abram will never inherit the land personally. The land won't come to Abram until it comes to his offspring. He'll never fully realize the promise of inheriting the land. His offspring will. And I think that there's a reason that this passage shows up. First, we have to say that there's a reason this happens. God says that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Which means that the current inhabitants of the land had not grieved God enough to be judged. God is going to judge them. He is a patient judge but a judge of sin nonetheless. And he will judge the Amorites who live in the land currently when their iniquity is complete. And this is the reason why Abram won't inherit the land and that his offspring will. I mentioned earlier that there's two layers of context, which means we have to ask, what does this passage mean for Abram? But also, what did this mean for the original readers? What would the Israelites in the wilderness have understood from this passage? I think they would have understood something incredibly important. It's that God was not inactive in their suffering. He was not surprised by what happened. And there was certainly a reason for their season of oppression. He never left them. He was providentially guiding and had his hand actively involved throughout all of their pain. God was not surprised by it. So the Lord sets out these terms of the covenant, that your offspring will inherit the land, you will die in peace and go to be with your fathers. This is the terms of the covenant. Your offspring will inherit the land, you'll die in peace. And then you would expect God to say, all right, now walk through. Because usually the weaker party would walk through first. But God never asks Abram to walk through the pieces. Instead, it says that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch come down and pass between the pieces. God, throughout the wilderness wanderings of the Israelite people, is continually depicted as a pillar of cloud and a flaming torch. So right now what's happening is God goes through the pieces. But Abram doesn't. What the text is telling us here is that God will take on the covenant curses established in this moment if he breaks the covenant, but he'll also take on the covenant curses established in this moment if Abram breaks the covenant or his offspring break the covenant. Not only will God have 
his body broken and his blood shed if he breaks the covenant, but he'll also have his body broken and his blood shed if Abram or his offspring does. God's covenant promises are not sealed by the work of God's people. God's covenant promises are sealed by God's work. And this is the gospel. That Jesus takes on the covenant curses so that we can, by believing in him and his work, have his righteousness credited to our account. This is what we believe as Christians. That Jesus took on the punishment for my breaking of a covenant. For my sin. He took on my shame for me. One day darkness would fall on the land again. In Mark 15, 33, it tells us that darkness fell upon the whole land and Jesus, bloodied on the cross, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had his body broken and his blood shed so that the offspring of Abram would inherit the land. God had to take the covenant curses. And he does in Jesus. Galatians 3.29 tells us that any who are in Christ are the offspring of Abraham. When we believe in Christ, the covenant blessings of land and future hope are given to us because of Christ's work. Because of Jesus, we can trust that even though in this life we may face the wilderness, we may struggle with assurance, we will one day inhabit the new Jerusalem that is secured for us by the obedience of Christ, who obeyed unto death on the cross, who takes the punishment so that we would be now motivated to obedience and faith not because of our work, but because of the work of Christ, the work of God. Abraham receives this promise with a barren wife, and before he inhabits any of the land, where he has continued to follow God's command to go without any clear idea of where he's going. The Israelites hear this story in the midst of the wilderness where they are struggling to see how any of what they are going through could be any good whatsoever. And what both of them would have taken away from this is that God has promised to make this happen at the expense of himself. So now we can trust that he will indeed do this. And here in this passage, I want to invite us into something. Recognizing God's work in keeping covenant promises on our behalf is so vital for our faith. If we move away and look to self and we don't look at Christ, we will always be finding reasons to question our salvation. We will always find it hard to obey. If we look to Jesus and what he has done, taking those covenant curses for us, 
we will always stand affirmed and assured on the solid rock of Christ. He is a God who is at work to make sure that his promises stand. And he proves that by dying for us. All we have to do is believe that God will do what he says. All we have to do is believe that Jesus has done the work. In John chapter 6, verses 28 through 29, some individuals come up to Jesus and they say, what must we be doing to be doing the work of God? And Jesus responds by, this is the work of God, to believe in him who he has sent. And maybe today you struggle with belief. And I want to encourage you to pray that God would help your unbelief. And I want to encourage you to look to Jesus. Belief and assurance in your faith does not happen by looking inward. It happens by looking to Christ. Doubts taken to God are good. He delights to point you to the crucified and risen Christ, the only hope of your assurance, the only hope of your faith, the only hope for your future. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Because Christ takes the punishment for those who break the covenants. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund has done some work for the Wicked Witch. And ends up realizing that that was wrong, and so he betrays her. He doesn't finish, but this makes him a traitor. And according to the law of the land, he now owed his life as a traitor. But the great king Aslan offers up his life in Edmund's place. The king who did nothing wrong steps in and takes the punishment that Edmund deserved. And if you believe in Christ, this is what God has done for you. He has taken the punishment that you deserve. He has taken your place, the place of a guilty traitor on death row, and he offers up his innocent, perfect life so that you can go free. He takes the punishment for your sin. And because death had no right to claim him, he rises again, defeating the forces that would claim our lives. And this is our assurance. This is our beloved hope. Look to Jesus. Turn away from self and hold fast to his work. The one who fulfills the covenant even if you don't. Let's pray. Father, we thank